Micah chapter 5, uh, last week we saw at the end of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, that, that a, a, a cloud had passed uh, in front of the Son of God's promise of his kingdom. And, and, and there was a little backtracking as Micah was going to explain what would happen before the millennial kingdom arrived. And uh, that dark cloud of God's providences, because of the punishment of the nation of Israel, um, uh, uh, is going to uh, blow away again. And God is going to reveal the full sunshine of His grace here. So, here's the idea in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. In the dark night of facing God's judgment for their sin against Him, in insurmountable odds, God promises grace... And a humble, eternal, shepherding and rescuing Messiah who's going to lead them in triumph and victory and peace under his rule of grace. In other words, you can say, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And the Messiah is a key figure in these verses. He's going to reign triumphant and he's going to bring his people, Israel, that remnant, with him. On the back of your bulletin are, are some uh, notes to help you follow along and, and track with you if, you're, if, that's, if that's your style here. But I want you to know that in ch- chapter 5, verse 1, where Micah says that um, the, the, uh, the troops that are going to gather around Jerusalem, they're going to gather around Israel, they're going to smite the judge or the king of Israel uh, with a rod upon the cheek. I'm talking about the captivity that's going to come. is in sharp contrast to verse 2. Notice the very first word of verse 2. But. But. So there's a contrast between that weak and that helpless ruler in chapter 5, verse 1, and the strong uh, Messiah, the king ruler of verse 2. First thing I want you to see in the first thing I want you to see is that we do have a humble Messiah. Humble Messiah. Look at verse 2. Now there were two Bethlehems in Israel. And he identifies a specific one, Bethlehem Ephrathah. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, among the thousands of villages and cities in Judah, though though you're very small out of all of those, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler or king in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Chapter 5, verse 1, you have the profound jewel of God's, king, of God's kingdom of Israel, Jerusalem. And she is besieged, she is battered, she is brought low. And God turns to an ancient promise from a little poor village called Bethlehem as Israel's source of hope. Now, if you don't catch the irony in that, um, uh, maybe you don't understand uh, Bethlehem. Um, the great God of Israel speaks directly. He says, You Bethlehem Ephrathah. That'd be like saying, uh, you know, if we took the state of Maine and said, you know, Portland is the, is the crowded city of Maine. I know some of you might disagree with that, but, you know, it's the largest city. Um, and says, Portland's going to be encompassed by enemies, and God's going to use, and I'll just take my little town, Union, a little town of Union to rescue it. Everybody in Portland would be like, what? Oh, Union, yeah, there's that thing with Moxie and, you know, and Matthew's Museum. They have a fair there every year, but, yeah. Well, God speaks to little forgotten Bethlehem, and he shines his glory on that little village, 
and he delivers a deliverer. He sets apart the promised Son of God in flesh to bring forth, in Bethlehem, its most famous and glorious subject. More glorious than Ruth, who lived in Bethlehem, Jesse, David, God in flesh, born in a food trough to traveling peasants. And it's in this person of Jesus that God's promise to David that an eternal ruler will be born comes to pass 700 years later. His promise remains a new David. A true and better David. He bypasses Jerusalem, the city he chose, and loved above all the other cities, and calls out one who would save the world from its sins to the stage of world history and redemption, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem. David's legacy, David's descendants, had failed. But out of the ashes of Judah, one of the little villages in Judah, little Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, Breadville, the greater David comes, laid in the lonely grain crib for animals. Bethlehem is too lowly, too weak, too despised to be listed among the charter of towns in Judah. doesn't make the list when they're mentioned in the Old Testament. And so fittingly, it becomes the birthplace of a little boy, born to peasants, in the portion of a Jewish house that's not even his own, the portion of the house where the animals will be tied for the evening, circumcised eight days later by parents too poor to afford a sacrifice greater than birds like common pigeons. He renounces all pomp and circumstance. He's revealed not to, ultimately, to the king of Israel. He's revealed first to lowly shepherds. Very low on the totem pole in the caste system. Alone on the hills outside Bethlehem. And his ways are not the ways of man, but they are the ways of committed faith and obedience to his father's plan. Near the end of his life, he rides on a donkey about the size of a great Dane into Jerusalem. He's betrayed, arrested, beaten like a common criminal, led away, despised, to the despised Roman cross where God's ways proved to be greater than man's ways. His humble origins in Bethlehem are kind of a microcosm of his whole life. For 30 years he lives in obscurity. It's only three years of his life that's even really known among people. The nation of Israel. And his humility plays even to the cross where... God unleashes him in triumph and victory over his enemies and salvation for each person of the na- each nation becomes his disciple. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Keep your finger in Micah because it's hard to find. This is the way God works. This is the way of his rule. You know, he gives a parable about his kingdom and he says... The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Very tiny. It's like a little bit of yeast. Bread. Causes the whole loaf to rise. Grows into a great plant. Mustard seed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-31. through 31, Paul reminds us of the 
so-called foolishness of the gospel. The wisdom of the world in contrast to the wisdom of God. And Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And it's wonderful that it says not many. Not many. It doesn't say not any. Not many. God does call people from those locations in life, in the world. Verse 27 tells how God has chosen to do things. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base, or bottom-rung things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence, and no one can brag it was me. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So he chooses weak and lowly things of the world, but found the wise and clothed them, clothed them in beauty and glory and honor. It's the way of God. You see, in Micah chapter 5, we have a humble Messiah. Which kind of makes us wonder, why is there a humble Savior and proud sinners? And here in the text, in in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Jerusalem's past and future greatness and its role as a central city in God's plan, as it's laid out throughout the scriptures here, starts in a cradle of that. God builds his kingdom through tiny mustard seeds, not towering redwoods. It tells me you don't have to be awesome. That's good. You don't have to be awesome and be used by him. You have to be faithful, you have to be obedient, you have to be humble like our Savior. In other words, you have to love and follow him, and there's not a person in here that can't do that through God's power. He's a humble Messiah. Secondly, look in the text again. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, Though that be little, the thousands of Judah, you're little. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. His going forth from Bethlehem will come one who will be ruler over Israel. Now, that's significant. You might have just passed over that like I did, but... It's significant because what had happened to the nation of Israel? They were divided, right? Northern kingdom and southern kingdom because of their um, uh, uh, rebellion. They were divided. But here is one who's going to be ruler over all Israel. All Israel again. Israel will have a completely fit ruler who will rule over all Israel. This is the plan of God before the foundation of the world. You see, there it says, whose goings forth have been from of old. Goings forth is the idea of, of, of ancient origins. Ancient origins. He told Eve that one of her descendants would be the undoing of the serpent. He had called Abraham out of his pagan worship, out of the city of Ur, a a city of of idolatry, and told him that he would make a nation out of him. And And one of his descendants would be the means through which the entire world would see the blessing of God, Messiah. 
He weaves the lineage of this. You can read Matthew 1 of this promised one through 52 generations. Through Isaac and Jacob and Judah. The harlot Rahab. Boaz, the Gentile Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon. Rebellious Rehoboam. Hezekiah, Jeconiah and his descendants in exile. Virgin Mary to deliver Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, who would save his people from their sins. This Jesus, this Messiah, always existed. He's eternal. He never had a beginning. He never had an end. He had a human beginning. He existed as God, one with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. He enjoyed the warm rays of delight His Father showered on Him. He reflected the glory of His Father back to Him in full and intense love and the joy of the Spirit. Having no beginning as the creator of the world, He would rebel against Him and torture and kill Him and trample His glory. Yet He shows His grace to them. He's the one that Isaiah predicts. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the rule, will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. And to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. He's eternal. Other verses, such as John 1 1, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Philippians 2 6, Colossians 1 17, God, uh, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1 8. They point to the eternality of Jesus Christ. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. His plan has come to pass. His plan will still be completed. He rules history. He rules the present. He rules the future. A thousand years is a day to Him, and a day is as a thousand years. He can be fully trusted because He is eternal. Our lives, my life, will begin, it has begun, and it will end. He has written the very number of our days. With Him is held the times of all the people. He holds eternity in the palm of His hand, the psalmist says. Your worries, your fears, your concerns are undergirded because Jesus is eternal. And He will bring into eternity with Him His very eternal life that He shares with His people. The psalmist tells us that in his book are written every one of our days that are formed for me and you before they even happen. I don't understand how that works. But that's what it says. And Psalm 90 says, to teach, So teach us to number our days that we may, we may walk in wisdom. Because our Messiah is eternal. Do you know Him? Do you walk with Him? Jesus is eternal. He's humble. He's eternal. Verse 3, Micah chapter 5. Therefore will He give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of His brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. What that verse is saying is that as Micah had written earlier in verse 9 of chapter 4, um, Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perish? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. He'd written that earlier. 
He's talking about Israel's spiritual pain and being uh, abandoned, being scattered. It was like a woman's physical pain and labor, he pictures it as. But the time will come when that labor will end and the birth will come. And that woman in labor is not necessarily referring to Mary, birthing Jesus, okay? But to Israel's uh, regathering here, likened to childbirth, when his brothers, Jesus' brothers, fellow Israelites, are going to return and join other Israelites, Christ being one of them. And Micah uh, 5, in verse 2 and 3, like many passages of Scripture that, that are prophecies about Messiah, are, 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 are usually two stages, progressive fulfillments, his first coming and his second coming that we're still looking forward to. And that's what he's talking about here. Then we get to verse 4, and it says, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Thirdly here, we have a shepherd Messiah, a shepherding Messiah. That word feed, there is a word for shepherd. So you could substitute in your mind, he shall stand and shepherd them. He shall shepherd them. He's going to stand for it. He's going to be like the unchanging stars in those ancient skies that they look up and see. They can depend on those night after night. They would navigate by those. He will stand. He will shepherd Israel as their new ruler. And look at the verse. How will he do it? How will he do it? He will do it in the strength of Yahweh. Uh, He will do it in the majesty of the name of Yahweh. And look what it says. Who's God? His God. His God. You know what that tells me? There's a relationship there. Relationship. This King, this promised Redeemer, this Messiah, He has a relationship with His Father. His God. His God. He will shepherd them through the overflowing power of His relationship with His Father. There's something very special about this shepherding, isn't there? Uh, it's accomplished through the, through the splendor, the magnificence, the majesty of his intimate fellowship with God. His God. In other words, his power and his greatness is directly connected to his unique, eternal relationship with his Father. You see this in his walk with his Father on the earth in the Gospels of He prayerfully seeks, he relies on the one that he has enjoyed eternal joy in his father. And he will establish a kingdom in that day where his father's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And we think back to the walk Jesus had with his uh, heavenly father. How amazing a walk he had. The times he would set aside. The words of God that were on his lips, uh, in his teaching, that you know had to come from a heart that had thought very, uh, very deeply about. Even his words and his death are words of scripture. He's in tune with his father. Uh, how, How amazing, how true that that relationship was enjoyed by him as even a little one, Luke 2 tells us. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Uh, A teenager, an adult, but let's not forget that he walked in closeness with his father before he came to earth. He still walks in the delight of his father as we're speaking right now. 
And he brought that to his people now by bringing them to his father. Here's great news. He's going to continue to share that. In the future kingdom, where he will be great to the ends of the earth, the verse says. For now shall he be great in the ends of the earth. See, it wasn't his, himself setting himself up for greatness, was it? It came out of a relationship with his father. It flowed out of that. His father exalted him. It makes us wonder about ourselves here. This ministry, the shepherding ministry that flowed out of his walk with the Lord. Uh, how is your walk? How is your walk? Does your walk with Jesus and your delight in the Father, because Jesus came to bring us to the Father, that's what he says, right? The only way man can come to the Father is through him. Your delight in the Father, he's brought you to in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Does that burn in you? Is that a passion for you? Does your love for the Master, does it flow over in ministry for others like it did in our, in our Lord? And many have said, and Ian Bounds probably says it the best, a Civil War chaplain wrote much on prayer. He says that the measure of a walk of following Jesus is really exhibited and charted in a vibrant prayer life. Uh, as you are in prayer, that is the definition, that is your spiritual thermostat. Do you feed in the green pastures of his word? Jesus says, my sheep... Hear my voice. They do. They hear my voice. And I know them. And they know me. The sign of, of a follower of Jesus is, is, the, is the feeding of, on His Word. Do you drink deeply in the still waters of His, His goodness? His righteousness showered on you, given to you in your behalf. Do you follow the leading of the shepherd in His Word? Or does His calls to you fall on our ears, deaf ears. Are your ears the ears of a goat? Or are they the ears of one of the master sheep? You can rest secure as Jesus' sheep in the majesty of his greatness, just as he in that day will bring Israel into his secure dwelling in that day. And then that verse says, He shall be great unto the ends of the earth. I want you to look at verse 5 and 6. Because not only do we have a humble Messiah, we have a, a, a eternal Messiah, a shepherding Messiah, we have a rescuing Messiah, a rescuing Messiah. Verse 5 and 6 brings us back again into the conflict. Again, it seems as though that the cloud is, is, is going to pass again. He's going to bring back, back the cloud there and remind them of the conflict that they, are, they, they will face. And so this placid picture in 5-2 and 5-3 and 5-4 vanishes for a moment. And you can start to hear boots coming, trampling boots of the invader in verse 5. And it's very hard here to place these events um, in a historical situation. Verse 5 says, And this man shall be the peace. Still talking about the Messiah. But when he's going to be the peace? When the Assyrians shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against them seven shepherds and eight principal men. 
And they shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us. He's a rescuing Messiah. From the Assyrian, when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. And this is one of Messiah's several accomplishments in bringing peace to Israel. Um, it goes all the way through verse 15. Tells a little bit more about it. We'll, we'll look at it next week. But he's going to be Israel's peace. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because he's going to subdue the hostile powers that are gathered around that nation. Assyria will not exist as a nation in the future. They fade away. They fade out of history. And it's probably a, a figure of the nations who, like Assyria, uh, will threaten and attack Jerusalem, like Zechariah 12. Um, the land of Nimrod there. land of Nimrod was a, was a synonym for, for Assyria and the enemies of God. And the idea here is Christ is going to enable Israel to defeat her foes. He's going to give the nation a more than adequate number of shepherds or leaders... Uh, uh, and, and whereas many nations have ruled Israel with a sword, in this coming kingdom, the tables will be turned and Israel will rule over her foes because he, the Messiah, is going to deliver her. It's interesting, as a side note here, that um, verse, verse 6 says, And they shall waste the land, these seven shepherds, eight principal men. Those are, as I understand it, figures of speech here. In other words, a full amount of shepherds and men. Uh, They shall waste the land. That's the word shepherd. The word waste is the word, actually the word shepherd that's already used to feed. So God's going to feed. He's going to shepherd Israel. And then God's going to use these people to shepherd Assyria with the blunt end of the sword. Jesus is for peace. This man of peace, and he's going to deliver Israel from Assyria or their enemies. And when they come into the land and palaces, and he's going to do this through a sufficient supply of leaders who are going to shepherd the enemies of God with a sword and rescue Israel from their enemies. And you know what that tells me? That this Messiah is serious. He is serious. And what is he serious about? He's serious about delivering his people from the enemies of God. And as we look in the scriptures, can we see how serious he is about delivering his people from their enemies? How serious was he delivering you from your greatest enemy of sin and death? How serious was he? How committed is he to your redemption? How passionate is he about delivering you from what would separate you forever justly from God and deliver you into life with him? He is serious about rescue, about deliver, deliverance. There's a man named uh, Augustus Toplady who was born in England in 1740. His uh, father was a royal marine and died on duty uh, soon after his son Augustus was born. And so Augustus was raised um, by his mother. He had an interest in religious things during his younger years. And he took journals and he, he, he always tried to be a good person uh, and wrote in those and, and, and really tried to, to be a moral person. But it wasn't until he was about 15 years old that the Methodist movement, started by John Wesley, which was a, a branch of Anglicanism, um, uh, but out of the, it was a branch of Anglicanism in less formal ways, um, that the, there was a Methodist revival in a barn in Ireland. 
And Augustus Toplady says that was when he was brought nigh to God, brought near to God. And it was at this point that the Lord worked in his life and he went into ministry. He had some disagreements with some of the teachings of Methodism. And um, uh, uh, in the age of 38, he ultimately died from tuberculosis. So he died as a young man. He never married. His life and ministry were short. He certainly had his share of flaws. But God used him the right of him that would so powerfully communicate and picture God's rescue, the gospel, and encourage us that we still sing it today. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. And uh, He wrote a number of hymns, but Rock of Ages is by far his most famous. And um, even secular culture recognizes the influence of Rock of Ages. And there's a story uh, about why he wrote it, which may or may not be true, that one day there was a horrible storm that blew up and Augustus Top Lady took refuge in an in a, in a, uh, outcropping of a rock, a rock cleft during that storm. Um, that particular rock they've identified there in North Somerset, England. It's got a plaque on it. it says this is, the, this is the rock where he hid under and inspired him to write the song. But um, nobody knows if that's for sure or not. But here is what the song says. And it really is a picture of what we've been talking about, our Messiah. Um, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. The double cure. What's the double cure? Save from wrath. That God doesn't just... Just save us from our sins and forgive us our sins and put us back at zero again and make me pure. He heaps eternal righteousness upon us. He heaps to us an eternal account. A double cure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite? No, in other words, if I can be passionate, as passionate as I could ever be, and never rest, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You know, he wrote that song because he believed the truth of this passage we looked at, that Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the rock of ages. And God's call for us this morning is to cast ourselves upon the rock of ages, our Messiah. He's the promised one. He is the humble promised one, the eternal promised one, the shepherding promised one, and the rescuing promised one. That last verse of Rock of Ages says this, While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Jesus is. He always was. Jesus is humble. Jesus is eternal. Jesus 
is our shepherd who shepherds us out of his relationship with his father. And Jesus is our rescuer.